Good morning. That's my time change check to make sure everybody's, everybody's awake and ready. Um, well, this, this morning I hope you'll, uh, hope you'll allow me the ability to, to break from chronological order as we're going through this uh, sermon series. The next uh, two scenes that we're going to look at uh, in Matthew's gospel as we go through it are, are uh, the scene with Passover and the Last Supper and then Jesus praying in Gethsemane. Now, chronologically, the Last Supper takes place first, and then Jesus and his disciples go out to Gethsemane. But because we are going to observe two baptisms today, and because we are going to participate in communion next week, uh, it just made sense thematically to to switch, to talk about Gethsemane this morning and talk about the Last Supper next week. So that's what we're going to do, uh, giving you fair warning. If you're kind of OCD like me, we'll just, just have to go with it today. Um, so as, we're, as, we, as we focus upon Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, the night of his arrest, what I want to do this morning as we begin into this is is focus on the topography of, of the Temple Mount, of the Mount of Olives. I, I want to literally look at the lay of the land, because doing so, I think, it gives us such an important context for, for understanding just what Jesus was going through as he prayed in Gethsemane the evening before his crucifixion. And, and I'm kind of going to use the, the, the stage here this morning to, to help us get a visual of the layout. And, and so since everyone is facing south, this is south here, so since you're facing south, we'll kind of just go off of that, lay things out accordingly. So that would mean this would be west over here, and this would be east over here on this side. So, so over here on the west side would be would be Jerusalem, would be the Temple Mount. This is where pretty much everything that we've been talking about these last few weeks took place here, took place in Jerusalem, okay? So, so if you were to walk out of the temple and go east, what, what you immediately come to is the Kidron Valley. And so we can pretend that there's a, a valley here right in the middle this morning. Um, the Kidron Valley drops about 700 feet, okay? So it's, you know, and for us in Illinois, that's substantial. So, so it really is a valley, right? The Kidron Valley, you go down 700 feet, and, and as you continue east, you come up the other side, and you get to the Mount of Olives, which will be over here on this side, okay? So we got Jerusalem, Kidron Valley in the middle, and then Mount of Olives over here. Now, uh, the Mount of Olives is actually about a hundred feet higher than, than the Temple Mount, than Jerusalem. So, so you get a pretty good view when you're, especially on the top of the Mount of Olives, you can see the temple, you can see the city really well. Now, if, from the Mount of Olives, if you were to continue going east, if, if you crested the mountain and, and continued on east, you get to what is known as the Judean wilderness. Okay, so this is Judean wilderness out here. That, that's not saying anything about you guys <laughs> sitting here, but the Judean wilderness is all there on the other side of the Mount of Olives. 
And I thought it'd be good, other than me trying to you know, lay it out on the stage this morning, I thought maybe a, a video clip and a picture would help. So Tom, if you would put that first video clip, this is from the Mount of Olives looking that way, looking toward Jerusalem. And so you can kind of see the valley there. You can see the, the Temple Mount with the Muslim mosque, Dome of the Rock, that's been built there. So it, and, and you really can see the view, right? You can see the city. Beyond it is more of the modern Jerusalem, but, but in the middle of the picture there is definitely, that's where ancient Jerusalem would have been. So you kind of get a, get a, a, a feel for what it looks like from the Mount of Olives looking back over across that valley into the Temple Mount. Now we've got one other picture, Tom, if you'll put that one up. So this is looking the other way. So now we're looking to the east. Again, you can see the Temple Mount with uh, the Dome of the Rock there. Can't make out the Kidron Valley quite as much because we're way up high. Um, if you see there's a building, a bigger building, just up and to the right of the Dome of the Rock, that, that's, that's kind of the traditional place, the traditional location for Gethsemane. We don't know for sure that it was right there, but, but in the past, typically they just built a church where the traditional site is, and so that's, that's potentially where Gethsemane was. But what I really want to focus on with this picture is at the very top. So if you go over the Mount of Olives, crest it, go onto the other side, you can see how it just all of a sudden changes to wilderness. You kind of you get that at the very top there. Okay, that, that's the Judean wilderness on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So, so hopefully, hopefully all of that uh, uh, kind of gives us a little bit of a picture of things. Now, one other thing to know about the Mount of Olives is it's called such because it contained many olive trees. I mean, that's groundbreaking, I know, but there's a lot of olive trees there. And, and, and one of the things you did with olives was make olive oil. That was a, it was a valuable commodity at that time. And so what they would do, on the Mount of Olives especially, it, instead of harvesting the olives and then loading them up, transporting them somewhere to make, it, make them into olive oil, they just built an olive press right there near the olive trees. Makes sense, right? I mean, why ship it and then do it and ship it again? So, so they built an olive press right there near the olive trees. And the name Gethsemane literally means olive press, okay, olive press. Now, those olive presses could be set up in different ways, but, but they really all functioned in the same manner. Uh, heavy stones were used to, to put pressure on the olives in order to squeeze the oil from them. So when you hear the, the, the word, the name Gethsemane, you can think olive press. That's what Gethsemane means. So we good? Is that kind of that, that kind of gives us the background there? It gives us a little bit of picture of the land, kind of uh, um, hopefully a picture of, of what took place there. Um, let's keep that in mind as we're as we're reading through the scene this morning. So we're in Matthew chapter twenty six. Uh, if you want to if you want to follow in the pew Bibles, it's page eight thirty two. We're going to read. Verses 36 through 46. So Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, 
sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So in the midst of this scene, Jesus is quite aware of what is going to happen to him. He, he's already made prophecies about his impending death and the fact that that death would be by crucifixion. He has stated that Judas would betray him. He has told the other disciples that they would all abandon him. So there's no doubt that Jesus is facing both physical and emotional turmoil while he's in the garden. Physical turmoil, knowing the physical pain that's coming. Emotional turmoil, knowing who's going to betray him, the fact that he would be abandoned. And, and I, I would say there, there's no doubt that, that Jesus is facing the same temptation that we all do as humans when we face physical, emotional turmoil. The temptation to flee. And, and sometimes the temptation might be to flee physically, right, to just to leave. Other, other times it might, the temptation might be to flee by changing a situation so that we don't have to go through whatever turmoil uh, we anticipate in front of us. The, the, there's just this natural temptation to recoil away from things that we perceive will be difficult or painful. Um, it, it, it's not human nature for a person to to skip and whistle on the way to physical or emotional pain, right? We, we, we just don't. That's, that, that's, that's not who we are as humans. And, and that's to say nothing about the spiritual turmoil that Jesus faced by knowing that he was going to be taking the sin of the world upon his shoulders, upon the cross. So, so I think that Jesus praying very near an olive press is an apt picture of what he felt. The pressure being exerted upon him by his own human desire to flee what lie in front of him, I mean, that must have been incredible. And, and can't we hear it in his voice as he prays? Prays to, to his heavenly Father, Father, can't you take this cup of suffering from me. I mean, in his humanity, he, he does not desire to experience the kind of pain and agony that, that lie in front of him. He, he longs for there to be another way 
to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Uh, I mean, he, he longs for there to be a way, really, that doesn't include the pain of crucifixion and, and the suffering of God's wrath upon sin. But he knows there isn't another way. I mean, he knows that. That's the way that had been prophesied for centuries. It's the way that God had chosen to fix the problem of sin. It's the way he had chosen to defeat sin. And so I think the reality of that was, was just pressing down so heavily on Jesus that the name Gethsemane suits it so well. But even though there wasn't another way for sin and death to be defeated, I think Jesus did still have another option regarding his response to what lie in front of him. So even though salvation and redemption had to come through the cross, there was a road that led away from the cross. And in this case, it's a literal road. So we've probably heard uh, the famous, about the famous Jericho Road from the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. This was, a, this was an actual road. It was an east-west road that, that connected Jerusalem with, with Jericho and, and other routes to the east. And this road went over, wouldn't you know it, the Mount of Olives. So for centuries, this road had been a, a primary way to get to Jerusalem from Jericho and the Jordan River and, and, and all the places to the east. That's how you, that, that was one of the main ways to get to Jerusalem. In addition, this road had served as an escape route through the centuries for those seeking to flee from Jerusalem. And there are biblical examples of this in, in 2 Samuel chapter 15. This road is, is what uh, David took as he was fleeing from his, uh, his son Absalom. In 2 Kings chapter 25, the last king of Israel, uh, of Judah, excuse me, Zedekiah, tried to flee from the Babylonians. He took that road. He ended up getting caught, but, but that was the route that he took to flee um, the Babylonians who, who were overtaking Jerusalem. So, man, so why was that, why was that the escape route? Like, why, when someone's got to flee from Jerusalem and get out of town, why, why was that the route? Well, remember, what, what's immediately on the other side of the Mount of Olives? What does this road go through? It goes through the Judean wilderness. It's an area filled with caves natural hideouts, it, it, it makes it the perfect place if you are looking to go and hide from somebody. I mean, that's why, there was such, that's why it was such a dangerous road also. You know, it was easy for robbers to hide both before and after they would rob someone. That's why when Jesus told the parable, it was such a natural setting for it. Now, Jesus, Jesus knew all that. He would have known his New Testament history. He would have known about David fleeing. He would have known about King Zedekiah fleeing. He would have known the topography of the area. I mean, he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. So, I mean, he, he knew about this road. He knew about the escape route that it was. So, as a result, Jesus would have known the, 
the theoretical escape from the cross that lie just that, that lie over here, he would have known that could have tried to flee and go that way into the Judean wilderness. I mean, imagine the temptation in his humanity that he must have felt to follow in the footsteps of David and of Zedekiah and, and I'm sure many others through the centuries. Imagine the temptation to flee from what was over here by going that way, to go to the wilderness, to hide, to get away from it. And, and remember, his disciples are fast asleep. No one would have even seen him. I mean, he could have disappeared and, and, and nobody would have had a clue. And, and, you know, speaking of his disciples, once they woke up and, and Judas showed up and, and things started going down, the, the, Matthew tells us the disciples all fled. We don't know exactly where they fled, but it's quite possible that's what they did. They, they took that road. Uh, we don't know that, but wouldn't surprise me one bit. So, so as Jesus prayed in Gethsemane that evening, he had a choice to make regarding what path he was going to take. Because the path this way led straight to Jerusalem, straight to pain, straight to suffering on the cross. And the path this way led away from it all, straight toward an existence of hiding in the wilderness, but but away from crucifixion going this way. So it's no wonder Jesus was in such agony as, as he prayed in the garden that evening. Luke tells us such agony that he sweat drops of blood. I think, man, what, what we then see in the story, in the midst of such a decision, is Jesus bowing to his Father's will. I mean, he, he knew, you know, this way, this way. And he said, you know what? I am submitting my own will to that of my Father's. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus had every opportunity to, to flee down that way. But he said, no, God, I'm going to follow your will. You know, in a way, I think, Jesus didn't just die on the cross the following day. I think we get a picture of him dying to himself that evening in Gethsemane. I mean, the physical death was coming, but he died to himself and to his own will. Right? He died to his own human urges and the temptation for self-preservation this way. And it, it is his death. It is his death which made the way for you and me to experience salvation. If Jesus would have gone that way, if he would have turned and fled that night, we'd have nothing. We would have nothing. We would be left to stand before the judgment seat of God by ourselves. That's what we would have gotten if Jesus went that way. We'd have no defense standing before God's judgment seat. We'd be found guilty. We'd be sent to an eternity of torment due to our sins. That's what we would have gotten if he went that way. And so I'm so grateful that Jesus persevered in Gethsemane. I'm so grateful that he didn't give in to that immense pressure to flee, but instead submitted his, in his humanity, submitted his will to his heavenly fathers and 
chose to go toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. You know, if you're here this morning and, and, and you're not quite sure whether or not Jesus uh, really and truly loves you, let this scene in Gethsemane be evidence that he does. I mean, he could have slipped away into the darkness, but, but he didn't. He, he loves you, he loves me enough that he turned toward the cross. He submitted himself to his Father's will and he took all that came with it. And he took it for your benefit and for my benefit. And that's incredible, isn't it? The Bible says, you know, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we're going to look even more closely at his love for us next week. That'll kind of be the theme of next week. But, but the question is, will, will we accept that, that Jesus loves us in that way? Will, will we accept him as our Savior? And to do so is to die to ourselves, like, like Jesus died to his own will that night, we accept Christ as we die to ourselves, right? Rather than trying to go our own way, rather than, rather than trying to earn eternal life through the way that we think is best or easiest, we, call, we are called to say to God, not as I will, but as you will, I'm going to submit myself to you. Now, when Jesus prayed that, that night, he said, not my will, but your will, Father. What he was saying that to was, was the cross. I mean, that's what he received by submitting himself to his Father's will. That's not what we receive. We don't get the cross when we submit ourselves to, fathers, to, to our Heavenly Father's will. That, that's been taken by Jesus. Instead, what, what we are submitting ourselves to is God's grace and his mercy poured out upon us and, and, and all of that culminating in an eternal relationship with him in heaven. I mean, that's something to say yes to, is it not? And And... You know, when you think about submitting to the will of God, it, it, it has to have a starting point, right? I mean, there's, there is that time where we, we, we first do that and submit ourselves to the will of the Father, but, but it's not a one-time event. That's not something that we do once and then, okay, that's it. We are, we are called to continually die to ourselves and submit to God. And I wanted, to, I wanted to read how, how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. At the beginning of Romans 6, he says it this way. He says, what, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is, is, is meant to be a symbol of this, of this purposeful and continual submission to God. It's meant to be a symbol of our, our death to ourselves, following in the example of Jesus, dying to himself by going toward the cross, dying on the cross. And so uh, you can see why I wanted to switch things around and talk about that today. I mean, we're, we're blessed uh, this morning to be able to witness two individuals taking that visual step of obedience and, and make that public proclamation about their faith in Jesus. They're dying to themselves for him. And so we're going to see uh, Kay Curley and Katrina Scott both proclaim that this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. Really are blessed to be able to see that. Um, and you guys can you guys can go ahead and start start getting ready for that. We'll uh, we'll finish up out here while you're doing that. You know, ba- baptism is one of those things that <clears throat> that's just so rich with symbolism. So much going on, but but one of the things is this proclamation of death to self. Going under the water is, is that picture of, of, of being buried with Christ. As Jesus died to himself and his commitment to the will of the Father, so, so too do we die to ourselves in, in becoming a disciple of Jesus. I mean, the temptation that we all faith, face is to resist that. Right? Sin, sin pulls us away from God, pushes us to pursue other things that we think are going to fulfill us. It's, it's rather interesting that there, there is a biblical place that is referred to as the wilderness of sin. Now, now it's not speaking of sin in the moral sense. It, it, it's, you know, it, it's just a Hebrew name, sin. It's not the English word sin, but it's kind of interesting, you know, when we, when we think about the, the Judean wilderness on the other side of the Mount of Olives and how, the, how you know, that would have tempted Jesus to find rescue, uh, refuge in it. You know, there, there is a wilderness which calls out to us as well. It's maybe not the Judean wilderness literally, but, but that wilderness might as well be called the wilderness of sin, right? It, it tempts us to come hide in it, tempts us promises us safety, promises us refuge. But to turn toward that wilderness and to turn away from God and his love and, and his purposes for us, it, it, it's not going to deliver what it promises. And perhaps daily, perhaps daily, we find ourselves in that Gethsemane-like place, just considering whether we're going to die to ourselves and submit to God where we're going to flee. We're going to go toward that wilderness. And, and can I just say the wilderness might seem like a good idea, but it's not. It's, it's dry. It's barren. It's, it's dead. It's not the life of, of ease and comfort that it might promise to be. So, so when we are in those Gethsemane times, weighing, what are, what are we going to do? May we respond like our Savior and, and come before God in prayer. 
And may our prayers lead us to submit to the will of God, just like it did with Jesus. And it may, may seem more difficult at first to do that, but it will ultimately lead us to where we need to be and, and where we really do want to go. It'll lead us to Christ. You know, Jesus desired to do his Father's will. And it, that shines forth so brightly in Gethsemane as he prayed there. We just see that so clearly. So I pray that I, pray that I, I pray that all of us would likewise have that same desire to do the Father's will. May, may, we, may we die to ourselves. May we yield, to, yield our will to his. And, and in light of Jesus' words to his disciples, that, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, let's end by praying to God together and ask for the strength that we need in our flesh, especially, to submit to God's will in that way. So let me pray for us. God, as we come to you this morning, uh, we're so blessed by this picture that that were given in Gethsemane. I, I thank you that you included that scene in your word to us. It's such a powerful declaration of Jesus' love for us. It's a powerful declaration of his desire to follow the will of the Heavenly Father. And God, we're given that picture as well of the disciples that just weren't quite able to do it that night. And, and we can't point the finger at them because in our, in our own strength, we, we do the same thing. We fall asleep, we flee. And so God, we, we, we pray that you would, uh, you would empower, empower us in our weakness. God, we, we're not going to submit to your will without you leading us into that and providing for us in that. So I pray for that this morning. God, I pray for that for me, for all of us here, that, that, that when we're looking at that path, deciding whether to follow your will or our own, that you would strengthen us to follow yours. Help us to die to ourselves. I thank you for such a wonderful picture we get of that this morning through Kay and Katrina being baptized. God, we give you praise for what you've done in their life already. Give you praise for what you will do moving forward from this day as well. We thank you that we have hope and we have salvation available to us because you turned toward the cross. God, it's, it, it, it's why we are who we are. It's why we worship you. It's why we die to ourselves. God, we pray all this this morning in your wonderful name.